If you take uh, Make America Great Again and you focus on the word again, when was the last time in your mind America was great? Thinking that he might actually go back to that post-world, the interwar period where we did sort of pull back. He didn't. He went back to Eisenhower. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, and Hisham Mellum, a columnist for the Al-Arabiya News Channel in Washington and correspondent for the Lebanese daily Anahar. And calling into the studio from her hot tub in Palo Alto is FP columnist Gori Shaki, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Thank you, ER nerds, for continuing to submit your best ideas for podcast episodes. Drop us a line about Trump or not or anything at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have an idea or a comment. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. We've talked a lot about the people in the Trump administration recently, but we're also starting to see some trends that I would consider anti-historical trends. Now, by that, I mean trends where Trump and those around him and those with whom he is allying himself seem to be trying to reverse the tide of history or to go back in time. Uh, the Trump administration is not a great leap forward. It doesn't represent progress. It represents nostalgia uh, in some cases. And in some cases, it represents something worse than nostalgia, complete forgetting of history. And I want to start with that one, Corey, and I want to turn the first question to you. Donald Trump has, in very short order, embraced and been embraced by Vladimir Putin. We'll come back to that. Picked a guy, Steve Bannon, as his right-hand guy in the White House, who almost immediately reached out to the Le Pen family in France and said, we're with you. Trump has allied himself as his principal liaison with Europe to Nigel Farage, the UKIP right-wing extremist um, in Great Britain. Um, He has been embraced by all these sort of right-wing movements there. And so I sort of see some warning clouds that Trump is allying himself with the anti-Europe movement and the dissolution of the Atlantic Alliance that has been the principal foundation of U.S. national security since the Second World War and is doing so in a way that plays directly into the hands of Trump's active sponsor, Vladimir Putin. Now, am I overstating this? You are not overstating this, David, that Trump is not only Not only does he not value the liberal order that has kept America strong and prosperous and and helped create strength and prosperity for countries that share our values and our interests, but he's actively working to erode that international order. And 
and treating allies as a burden, treating norms, laws, and practices that legitimate American power for less powerful states. His inclination is to sweep all of that away, to treat it as though it has no value and imposes costs on us, when in fact the exact reverse is true. And once it's gone, we may have the widest margin of error of a country in the international order, but that margin of error has been growing narrower in recent years. And and an international order growing more chaotic and dangerous is not in our interests. Oh, that can't be true. David, does she, that sounds terrible. I'm trying to figure out if there's a way here I can be in agreement with Corey and disagreement with you on this. I don't think so. I think we're pretty aligned on this. Yeah, that's just as a matter of principle. Well, you could uh, say Corey <laughs> said it better than I did. Well, that's certainly true, but that's true. On, <laughs> but we could we could use that line so many times in one podcast. Um, so um, if you think about what that international order has been, it has been one of making the United States the first and most powerful among – a group of very close-knit allies. And you think about what Putin has been trying to do consistently, which is undercut the alliance without confronting the United States frontally. And he's I think, succeeding. And he is, you know, and, and even the hacking into the election oh my God. was, was – Vladimir a, Putin, what a year. He's, he's yes. had a good – what, what a year. It's we like, should get him on I mean, the for, pot. For, for, for a man who's presiding yeah. over a primitive economy, I mean Russia is really a huge gas station. There is nothing there but that. And right. an economy and, and, about the size of Sweden. Yeah. And, so, and he's screwing yeah. up left and right yeah. at home. He can't get, a, can't get it right at home. But Brexit and Trump and Crimea. Syria. Crimea. Yeah. I mean people must – with the day Trump got – Syria. He's they, destroying Syria. He's destroying Syria. Yeah. And the world is like – Watching. I mean, Donald Trump, the, the United States just elected a president who essentially said, you know something, destroy Syria. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, it's we, we may collaborate with you. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, let it, we'll let it happen. This guy, Putin, as a genius, I hope he listens. Vlad, if you're listening, call in. You know, we let's really get you get, here we on the show. We'd love to have – I'd love to hear Corey talk to you, Vlad. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, would be, it would be good to get him on the podcast. I don't think we've done that yet. So uh, anyway, just to continue this thought um, – if you, you think you, that that has you been— You know he's reading your email before you send it, right? No, <laughs> oh, I assume so. So um, the if that's been the mission of the United States, my guess is that over time what you're going to see happen, and that time may just be in the first year, is that Putin and Trump will actually come to differ on something big or something that seems to offend Trump's idea of his own— control of uh, of the world stage. And I could imagine a pretty big divorce here. So I wouldn't rush off to the thought that the um, nice sounds we're hearing right now are necessarily where we're going to be because well, the, as, reflexive, as... the reflexive motion of many people who he is hiring in his foreign policy world is going to be pretty anti-Russia. And think about – who knows if Mitt Romney is going to end up as secretary of state or he's going to continue doing whatever he does these days. Um, but he's the one who in the 2012 debates chided President Obama 
for not taking the Russian rise uh, of of trouble around the world seriously enough. But I, th- I think it, it, what is troubling here is that I think uh, the rise of uh, Trump here is part of that international phenomena of the rise of chauvinistic nationalism. Call it white nationalism in Europe or here, ethno nationalism. Yeah. Exactly, and we've seen we've seen that in Europe, and we've seen that in, to a lesser extent here. And uh, Putin is exploiting that to his own uh, ends. What what is disturbing is that when you look at Trump's domestic record, I mean, he changes views constantly. He's for abortion before he was against it. He was for the war in Iraq before they were against it. The war in Libya before he was against it. All of this. But there's one of few consistent views was his uh, negative view of Europe and the alliance. Uh, in, in the year 2000, he published a book, The America We Deserve, in which he really put down NATO. I mean, he was questioning the validity and the meaning and the purpose of NATO for many, many, many years. And that's why his views now on Russia and and on NATO are not surprising, should not be surprising. What we are seeing now is the dismantlement of that great order that the Americans led after the Second World War, which gave the West, including Europe and, the, and North America, one of the longest periods of peace in the world. And this is the world, as a little child growing up, growing up in Beirut, I kind of sensed it. Uh, that's the American order in many ways. And uh, one of my critiques of President Obama is that, unlike what some, some people accuse him of being, you know, not, not, uh, not an American, uh, you know, doesn't love America and all that uh, nonsense, is that also Obama doesn't believe necessarily that the United States is still capable of doing great things on its own, like the Marshall Plan, like the Peace Corps, like uh, all of all of these things. And I think with with, with Trump, he, he he wants to go back to the old days of isolationism, as if uh, as if in in the era of globalization there is such a, such such a thing. Now you want America to be barely first among equal, or you want the United States to lead warts and all, and. And, and if the United States is not in a leading position, you, and this is what I tell my friends in Europe and the Arab world who complain about the United States, okay? Okay, if, if, there is, if, if there is only one political culture dominant in the world, would you want that to be the United States, words and all, or that of Russia, or that of China, or that of India, or, that of, or even the Europeans who cannot even defend themselves? Or you take the United States, words and all, and really sometimes, you know, they have to scratch their head and think about it, honestly. And but then your, friends, then your friends say, oh, that's crazy, Hisham. He went to Villanova. You know, he's been I mean, brainwashed. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's yeah, true. But, that's it's the, the Americanization. It's me. the Americanization. <laughs> of you. But, 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 but Corey, Corey, you know, as I listen to this, it, it really it, – it actually viscerally makes me uncomfortable because what I think is – in, in 1991, we celebrated the fall of the Soviet Union without a shot. We talked about how we had triumphed and this enemy, almost as Eisenhower predicted, it would collapsed from within of its, of its own weight. And, and this, was, this was sort of a great diplomatic and security triumph. Now, here we are, literally 25 years later exactly, talking about Russia orchestrating the collapse of the Atlantic Alliance without a shot. Now, does yeah. this just mean I'm like some like old school dude and, you know, if we don't have Soviet Union, maybe we shouldn't be worried about the Atlantic Alliance? Or is there something really to worry about here? There's a lot to worry about here. First of all, the president-elect and the team around him seem to take for granted that in a weird way, I actually think 
Trump foreign policy may be an accentuation of the worst elements of Obama foreign policy. The belief that we don't have to invest anything in sustaining an order that's beneficial to us, <laughs> excuse me, beneficial to us and others, and that there will be no cost to reestablish it once it's gone. Corey, you should not have opened that care package that rece- you received from a strange Moscow address. <laughs> and started, <laughs> and started, started drinking. Oh, what's this? Vodka. <laughs> um, um, okay, David, let's let's shift gears because okay, the Atlantic Alliance is collapsing, and the United States president is complicit in a conspiracy with the president of Russia to destroy it. But you know, the American people don't seem to care about that. I mean, the national head of the national security agency said Russia had its thumb on the scale in the election, and it was like. Oh, look, what else is new? What's on television tonight? We totally ignore this. Okay, let's set that aside. Let's look elsewhere. Let's look Let's look at the Middle East. You know, the United States has been involved there almost always unsuccessfully for the course of the past 25 years. But at least there was this kind of general sense that we had a couple of objectives. One of the objectives was the promotion of democracy. One of the objectives was the promotion of stability. One of the objectives was the maintenance of access to certain resources in the regions that we want in the region that we wanted. One of the objectives was defeating terrorism uh, and bad guys. I mean, those were like principles. I mean, you know, shift how you do it, but that was kind of whatever. Now we seem to be on the verge of something completely different. Where, we are, where, um, you know, we're embracing bad guys, and you know, it, it, and 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 we have no, we, we don't think we have a role in some places. We're ceding ceding authority. It's almost like there's Sykes Pico 2.0, except we're thinking that there should be a Russian Iranian zone, uh, and maybe a tiny little Israeli zone, and screw everybody else. Well, we don't know yet that that's the way this is going to shake out. But what you are seeing is the struggle within the new, newly formed team and perhaps within Donald Trump's own mind to define what he meant when he said America first in those, those interviews that we, uh, we did with him. And the reason I say that is that you could take what he has said about the Middle East in two completely different ways. Way number one is we're pulling back. We don't care about civil wars in Syria in which 470,000 people are killed. We'll just align with whoever will fight ISIS and the rest of it is for them to sort out. Thought number two comes from Trump's statements that we uh, need to take the oil, that we need to uh, bomb the hell out of ISIS and so forth, all of which require us being there. So the question is, does he end up coming out with the orthodoxy of the current Republican Party and many Democrats, which is this is a multi-generational struggle that is going to require significant presence abroad for many years because the Middle East, to take that now worn phrase, doesn't uh, play by Las Vegas rules. What happens there doesn't stay there. Or does he try to pull back to American borders? And the answer is that we could sit here and discuss it all day, but we simply don't know because he hasn't been tested yet on a couple of key decisions that would make it critical for our understanding of whether he's going to pull back to American borders. This is your neighborhood. (laughs) 
Look, I mean, you have to judge him by what he said, but I agree with you because he said contradictory things. I'm shocked. Uh, about Iraq and about Syria and about fighting, uh, fighting terrorism. He talks in broad uh, strokes about uh, uh, bombing uh, the hell out of ISIS, but he wants to be in partnership with Putin in Syria. He does believe erroneously that, Syria, that uh, Putin and Assad and the Iranians are fighting ISIS in Syria, while in fact this tripartite alliance is fighting the Syrian people and the very opposition groups that we at one time or another help financially and materially. Uh, he has no clue about what's happening there. He doesn't know Iraq at all. And when he talks about taking over the oil, how do you do that? I mean, there's something tiny called, I mean, insignificant called inter international law. Can you take the oil without sending ground troops to occupy the oil fields? I mean, are we now the new pirates of the 21st century? Uh, I mean, well, he's this, not going to do that. He's, I mean, he's just going to let the, the Russians do it and the Iranians not, do it. Not, and by the way, he's not going to touch the Iranian deal. I, 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 I'm almost, I mean, I, really? I have no. That's why, interesting. Why, why, yeah, why, what is the return? What is the return? He cannot renegotiate it because that would open up the door for the hardliners in Tehran to get out of it. That's one. And, and he cannot just tear it apart without alienating his new friend, Vladimir Putin, because Putin is part of the deal. He's going to alienate three traditional allies the French and the Germans and the, and the Brits, and he's going to alienate also the Chinese. Let me give you a theory about how he does this. I don't I agree. He will, he, he he will allow the Congress to, to yeah, ratchet up, right. to ratchet up he, the, he doesn't the, the sanctions. Tear, that's right. He doesn't tear it apart. He, he can't he tear lets, it apart. He, he lets the Congress do yeah, just that. Sure. And then it's the Iranians who end up ripping it apart by saying, with some cause, you have taken sanctions that were initially on our nuclear activity and just relabeled them as sanctions for our support of sure. Assad yeah. or something sure. else. But we yeah, lose, but, but, we but lose but, in the end because, because that would free the Iranians again to pursue their nuclear program and to run, to, to, to run Hewar in the, in the whole region. But okay. I was listening not too long ago to one of his advisors, Jim Woolsey. Yeah, uh, yeah, another yeah, another one. Another, another wise man. Another wise man saying um, something to the effect of, well, you know, this is tactical. We embraced the Russians to defeat Hitler, and then we turned on the Russians. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to need to embrace the Iranians to defeat ISIS, and then we can deal with ISIS later on. And so, you know, there was a, that's kind of a tip of the hand in the direction of what Hisham is talking about here, that, you know, the first thing we're going to do is try to look as tough as we can on ISIS. And to try to do that, we're going to sort of embrace Putin. And, and by the way, you know, among the big winners here, and Putin must have, you know, had a big long hangover after this, Assad must be just happy as a clam. He said that. He said that. Yes. You know, he's a natural ally. He's going to fight ISIS with us. He said that. He, he was pretty straight up. And, of course, when you've just been elected president of the United States and you've been embraced by somebody who has uh, just completed the killing of 470,000 or been responsible for the killing of 470,000 of your own citizens, it might be a moment for pause. But, Corey, the president-elect president of the United States got on the phone with the Russian president had a lovely chat with him, you know, that, you know, sending each other a little, you know, kissy. Unsecure un un line. <laughs> right, little kissy emojis or whatever the hell they were doing. <laughs> and the day later, you know, Putin launches a new offensive in Syria. Uh, and in the consequence of that offensive, a children's hospital is blown up. Yeah. And the only on one purpose. that was left in Aleppo. Right, on purpose. Yes, yes. And, and I don't recall hearing anything out of the Trump team, which seems to be dabbling in foreign policy, expressing even the slightest concern. By the about way, this. have you heard them all throughout all this campaign say one word about human rights? 
One word wow. anywhere in the world. That's why the autocrats in the region are celebrating. There isn't a single word about the sanctity of human life in those countries, about the torture that takes place, about the campaigns against the media. They, are, they love him now because of this, because, like you said, he's going to give them, you know, license to continue yeah. their, 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 their tor- tormenting their own people. Yeah, I think we have so to. So I think. Yeah, go on. So just to to answer the question, David, I think there are two really troubling things about this. The first, Hisham has already hit on, which is that it sounds like under Trump, American foreign policy would be indistinguishable from the foreign policy of Russia or China. And that corrodes the international order that's so advantageous to us and to so many others that will be very costly to get back. The second thing that's so troubling about this, though, is that even if Trump did not make a tacit agreement with Putin that it's okay to start bombing Aleppo again, and we're not going to say anything about it, we're not going to do anything about it, Even if he did not make that tacit agreement, the Russians sure made it look to everyone in the world as though he made that agreement. And the fact that he didn't respond afterwards, the fact that he didn't respond afterwards confirmed it. And this is Kissinger in Indonesia meeting with Suharto and the next day they go into Timor. Right. It's it's the same kind of thing where, you know, all of a sudden everybody gets a clear message. And and clearly it was a bad morning the day after the election in Ukraine. It was a bad morning the day after the election in the Baltics. It was a bad morning for the Syrian opposition forces uh, because they all know they're being hung out to dry in this in this mix. Well, let's go back to the counter historical theme a little bit more. David. A long time ago, I first met you as you're like riding a horse down, you know, dirt paved Pennsylvania. The horse Avenue. he rode in on. That was the horse he rode in on. And you were, <laughs> you were covering <clears throat> economics. Do you remember economics? I, I remember that there was like this old guy sitting in the commerce department I used to go off and talk to. Yeah, yeah. That, was my, that was my boss. But in any event, <laughs> um, but, but we were there in the commerce department um, and to chatting about this idea of trade liberalization, free trade and so forth, which we, will always, come, we always you know sort of framed it in. This is a 60-70-year trend. American administrations on both sides have always been for sort of liberalization of the economic order because we realized we were 5 percent of the world's population and we needed access to the other 95 percent and so forth. But yet there is every signal that this Trump team seems to be going in and is the first team to be as aggressively anti-trade as they are. Looks like they're going to appoint people who are anti-trade, have already said they want to go and renegotiate NAFTA, blow up TPP, um, go after the Chinese, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, in a way that's literally inconsistent with 70 years of policy. It, am, am I overstating this? No, you're not. But you, you forget here that in this remarkable presidential election, two really interesting things happened on trade. The first was the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate had views on trade that differed very little, at least in their public statements. Now, we can all sit around and say, had Hillary Clinton got elected president, she would have suddenly forgotten her opposition to TPP and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, her party was much more aligned with Trump on this. And the second thing we forget is that if you take a look at that fascinating subset of people, you and I have discussed it before, who voted for Barack Obama and then turned around and voted for Donald Trump, 
there's a huge group of them who made that switch because of trade and because the Democrats completely failed, completely failed to recognize the both pain and the need to do, give something other than lip service to the idea of getting people to adjust to this kind of economy. That doesn't mean, I think, that the 70-year experiment is off course forever. You know, you, there were various moments as we move from an agricultural society to an industrial one in which we took some really big steps backwards. And that was roughly when you were at the Commerce Department, as I recall. But, <laughs> but I, I, I do think that you are in for four years or so of big steps back. And then the question is, can the Democrats actually get their head around this? By the way, folks, when he says stuff like that about you know how old I am, the silence you hear immediately afterward is what an eye roll sounds like in a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, anyway, um, Corey, is this a big deal or am I just some East Coast elitist tool? You know, as we've discussed before, one of the great highlights of my past year is when um, after writing something attacking Trump, Breitbart actually wrote an article accusing me of being the architect of NAFTA which I was a huge promotion and I was like <laughs> this was like I, I took it as a compliment. So clearly I'm deeply out of touch here. But you don't even live on the East Coast, so you probably speak to real Americans. Well you live in California. But you've traveled. So what So so Yes, you are an East Coast establishment tool, David. And yes, the, uh, the argument you are making is a huge deal. This is really problematic. And the the set of assumptions that the United States is being taken advantage of by our allies instead of them being the best strategic advantage we have as we engage in shaping the world to our interests. So so they're wrong on that. They're wrong on trade policy being damaging to the United States rather than enriching to the United States. They are wrong that our values are an impediment to doing what needs to be done in the world instead of a way of of reducing the cost of what we are trying to do in the world because people give us the benefit of the doubt that we actually care about 470,000 dead Syrians and care about the difference between countries that purposely bomb children's hospitals and countries that don't do that. That they are wrong in so many fundamental ways that I agree with David that that it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the liberal order, but it will be an enormous challenge to try and find ways to contain a Trump administration such that it does not damage that order. At, at the risk of sounding like a, a, as a member of this chorus, I agree with the, with David. Uh, for those who are listening, David Sanger. When he says, "When that, we talk about Eastern elitists, yeah, you are yeah, really yeah, Eastern." Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm from way back here, way across the across right. the ocean. Look, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the, the there was a historic failure on the part of the uh, Democratic Party to address the so-called deplorables. But the problem is this revisionism of. Uh, of globalization or international trade, which is an orthodoxy, even for the Republican Party. 
um, and for the whole elite in the East, as, as uh, the other David would say. But what happened in the last 25 years is that we've seen the victims of, or the, I call them the disinherited uh, or dispossessed people who were left behind by, by the uh, globalized economy, is that it, this was not a failure of the Democrats or the Republicans. This was a fail. It's a systemic failure. It's like you said, this is a historic uh, moment where we have shifts in, in, in the nature of the economy. And elections and, matter and you can't ignore their that's results. True, that's true. But I think people will wake up in a year or two or three when they realize that the small town that lost the factory that went to China or to India, that factory is not going to go back. And, 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 and I think the failure was a failure of imagination. What to do with these people that J.D. Vance wrote about in his book, you know, uh, Hillbilly Elegy? I mean, these people are in their 40s or mid-50s. They lost the factory. They lost their jobs. They are unemployed. And then there is no income. There are no taxation. There are no services. And, and then you have no the breakup future. of the family. Mm. And then men start beating their wives. And then you have children out of wedlock. And then the last tsunami is the drugs. This is a, a truly tragic, I mean, a national tragedy. And it, it's not going to be addressed by, you know, giving a speech at the floor of, of, of the House or the Senate. And it's going to require uh, something like uh, like the Manhattan Project when it comes to, to, to science and, and the nuclear. I mean, you need to do something drastic that's going to take serious men and women deliberating about what to do, what kind of new economy uh, we will come up with, what kind of new training, changing in the educational system, all of these things. And I think in, the, in a year or two, those people who voted for Obama first and then voted for, for, for Trump because of trade in, in, in part are going to realize that what, what, what they asked, uh, uh, they, they were rude the day when they voted for, for Trump. Well, I, I'm, I'm certain that that's going to be the case. Part of the problem, though, is that when you talk about these people in their 40s and 50s and you know going through all of these troubles and stuff like that, writers like David Sanger at the New York Times think, well, they're still young. You know, they have a future. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I don't have that luxury. I can't say that. <laughs> David's younger than me. <laughs> but David, Corey, Nicely this is when played, you're supposed David. to come in and defend Nicely me. Played. Yeah, we, but 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 we have have a debt of gratitude to to offer Mr. Sanger here. We shouldn't pick on him, okay? What? Because no, no, it's true. We we owe him a lot. America owes him a lot um, because, and this is the last bit of historical. Reset that I, that I want to talk about today, the anti-historical Trump. David Sanger is the man who gave Donald Trump America first. He's the one who gave him this phrase, which he embraced without realizing it was also it means, yeah, had it undertones <laughs> of Nazism. Um, but 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 Trump, you know, sort of leapt to the bait um, and and said, "Yes, that's it, America first and never 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 gave that up. And and it was a movement that was you know per, you know pertains to what Hisham was talking about isolationism. It was a movement that said America can withdraw from the world, can leave the salvation of problems to somebody else. In fact, when you think about the anti-historical qualities of Trump, he sounds a lot like a post World War One Republican in the United States. Sure. Let's withdraw. Let's let other people deal with this stuff, and. Let's deal with our problems at home. What's interesting, though, uh, David, is that when I asked him in one of those interviews, if you take uh, Make America Great Again and you focus on the word again, when was the last time in your mind America was great? Exactly. 
thinking that he might actually go back to that post-war, the interwar period where we did sort of pull back. He didn't. He went back to Eisenhower, which, of course, is when this great experiment in internationalism really began to flourish. Now, well, that, this is because he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. It could be, I but mean, it was interesting that that was— Let's, in, let's just be clear, but right? If that's, mean, the cl- if that's your point, David, then there is the possibility that he actually doesn't have fixed views here yet. Tabula rasa. And, and that, that, he, that the Donald Trump that we are describing today uh, might play this out in very different ways because he doesn't have a consistent ideological or historical framework for this. He hasn't been listening to the ER and he hasn't been reading Corey's books. Tabula imbecilis is the way I think we would end up with it. But Corey. <laughs> and David, I agree with David Sanger's very good point that the fact that he's not ideological, that is that he doesn't have conservative principles and policies based on them, um, may make it possible to influence his policies in a positive direction. Let's but it may also make it possible to influence his policies in a much worse direction. Precisely. Precisely. And that's where the advisors he is surrounding himself with matter so much because they are not going to be people who say, oh, oh, wow, you know, uh, Mr. President, you are wrong about the Japanese-American uh, defense arrangement. It's actually the anchor of how we are managing a rising power in Asia. And it's the model for uh, a strong, solid relationship based on values and common interests and working together to solve hard problems. The people he is surrounding him with are not going to carry that brief. So here's some America withdrawing from the world. It's something you and I have been talking about for eight years. Does Trump sound a little bit like Obama to you? Actually, there is, yeah. I mean, there is that, that kind of tendency that we cannot be the leader of the world, that we cannot bear the burden to, to go back to John F. Kennedy's words. Uh, and I think this is a mistake. Look, for someone who, who is an American by choice, okay, I was not born here. And what happened really hits home. I mean, it resonates painfully. I still believe that there are certain things only the United States can do, only America can do. And, and, and there is that, 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 that part that we don't talk about. There is the benevolent America that we've seen in the last 100 years, uh, the benevolent America that saved the Kosovars and the Bosnians from mass killing, where there was no Amer- discernible American economic or strategic interest in the Balkans. This is America that saved the Kurds, America that saved the Kuwaitis, America that did all sorts of things in the world. I mean, Barack Obama dispatched 4,000 troops to West Africa to deal with Ebola. I mean, only America can do that. While Germany and the French and, and France have technical capability, but you don't expect them to do it. You expect the United States to do. And I think for someone who was born in a different part of the world and spent, spent most of my life here, I still believe that this America, we should fight for this America. Uh, here, here. Uh, 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 you know, and call it the liberal order, call it the, the American century. Uh, you cannot lead unless, unless you incur some pain once in a while. And there is that tendency because of the two longest wars that we've been engaged in in the last 15, 16 years, Afghanistan and Iraq, we are recoiling in a way from the world. There is a cultural tendency to do that. But I would say that this too shall pass, and we have to have that, 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 that long-term view. But we should fight for what America meant to the world, for what, what America meant to my generation of, of people who, who became Americans later on. And, and I think it's still worth the fight. 
Once again, Hisham Mellum redefining what it means to be an Eastern elitist. You... Proud are an to, inspiration to us proud, all. Proud, proud, to, be, proud to be part of the deplorables. <laughs> we are the new deplorables, ladies yes, and exactly. gentlemen. With, in the Trump era, we are the new deplorables. We're sophisticated deplorables. We, we own it. We own it. Um, Isham is a great reminder that that immigration is the lifeblood of the United States. Thank you, Cody. Thank you. Because I, people who choose to be Americans remind all of us the importance of what we stand for. I totally agree with you. And I noticed that you picked up on my tweet when this repulsive suggestion came out from a Trump surrogate that we might create a Muslim register in the United States. That was a good tweet, by the way. But, but I mean, the point is the we obligation of every human being in the United States with a shred of decency would be to register for such a thing. Nothing could be less American than singling out a group like this. And, you know, these are the worrisome things. What I really worry about with a Trump presidency is that he will – do a number of things that appear like other presidents. He will use the power of the presidency to buy off some of the people who opposed him, tax cuts, deals, and so forth. He will seem like he's an 80% okay guy. And then in betwixt and between those steps, there will be an erosion of the First Amendment rights. There will be an erosion of freedom of religion. There will be a, an erosion of our international institutions on which we depend. There will be an erosion of our international standing. And those things are irreversible. Those things really weaken us as a country uh, and damage the world. Uh, sorry to end on a note like that, but as I've said earlier, I think the Trump administration is going to see me working on my skills at the screed. I'm going to become a great screed writer. Pamphleteer. Uh, pamphleteer. Oh, David, you're already a great screed writer. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to be a screenwriter, but I had a cold. In any event, um, so I ended up with a screed writer. Anyway, Corey, thank you. David, thank you. Hisham, Thank you. Thank you, sir. We will be back next week with another episode of the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.